So here's, here's what I want to throw out to you before we get even get started. Um, usually in December of each year, I spend time focusing and praying about uh, a word for the upcoming year. And uh, like it or not, my word for 2020 that I got in December of 2019 was uh, prepare for the unexpected. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I yeah, I thought it was going to, I was expecting the unexpected to be a little less unexpecting than it was, but it is unexpected. It was dead on, I'll tell you that much. Um, and so what I would love if, I, I'm, I'm going to be fasting. I have been fasting each Tuesday of, uh, of each week leading up through the end of the year. And if that's something that you'd love to just be a part of, um, just be praying for your, your personal word or a word for your family or even a word for our church direction of like where, where we headed in for this next year. Um, and you want to come alongside and join me. I've got a, a bunch of guys and I've been doing it with, a, with an individual over the, the, the past couple weeks. And I'd love to invite you in as a church family. So if that's something that kind of like your spirit leaps at, then, then that's probably Jesus because I've never, I've never thought, hey, I don't want to eat. Normally, normally I'm like, hey, what's for, what's for dinner? Um, so if, uh, if that kind of leaps in, in you, then it's, it's most definitely Jesus and it's probably not you. So um, anyway, that's the 15th, 22nd, and 29th. I'm going to be fasting during those days and just, just praying, praying that God would give us a word for, uh, for 2021. Anyway, put that out there. Um, that being said, I've been looking back on 2020 and, I, and you're like, why? Um, but... <laughs> But I've been, I've been going through all these different things. This is, 2020 has been full of a lot of stuff. Um, divided politics, sketchy scandals, distrust of most everything and everyone, uh, loss of control, unexpected changes, murder hornets, isolation, uh, sickness, fear of sickness, restrictions, executive orders, job losses, closings, and a worldwide pandemic, um, just to name a few. Um, this is not what I had hoped for. I don't know about you if this is like, you're like, no, this is, this is kind of heading into 2020. This is what I was hoping for. You're a sicko and we need to talk or I need to pray for you. Um, but this is not what most of us had hoped for heading into uh, 2020. And so the question that I want to talk to you about today as we get into the Word of God is this, that how do we continue to hope even when what we had hoped for is not happening? How do we continue to hope even when what we'd hoped for is not happening. And today we're going to get into Luke chapter 24. So if you've got your Bibles or your YouVersion app, whatever you look, look, on, look, look at your Bible with, it's uh, Luke chapter 24. And we're going to kind of hunker down in there. And um, we're, going to, we're going to get into this, this story of two people that were walking on a road, the road to Emmaus, and they had lost hope, lost all hope. So let me set the scene for you before we get into it. Um, if you read Luke 24, it, it's all about Jesus rising from the dead, right? It's, it's Easter. It's Easter morning. Luke chapter 24, verse 1, begins with Easter morning. The women get up early. They've got all the spices, and they're going to embalm Jesus' dead body. Like, that's the plan. That's what they're there for. They're not expecting a resurrection. They're expecting a dead body that they're going to help embalm. And they come upon what we would consider a crime scene in our day, Right? It's kind of scary. It's early, unexpected. The, the, the tomb, the, the stone has been rolled away. The, the body's missing. I mean, it's kind of scandalous. Like, what in the world's happening? And if that's not jarring enough, they go inside to the tomb, and all of a sudden, two angels jump scare them. 
And, and you can read it yourself. It's legit a jump scare. Like the, the, the women melt down immediately, like to the ground, like I would, like you would, would scream and then just melt. And that's what they do. They melt to the ground and the angels say a few things to them. But, but the biggest, the, the most substantive thing that they say is um, Jesus is not here. He is risen. He's not here. He's risen. And uh, all the women, when they finally gather themselves together, they go and they run back to the disciples to tell them about everything that had just happened and their whole experience and what happens. Nobody believes them. Can you imagine having this experience, this really kind of startling, scary, world-altering experience, and then going back to the people that you love and trust and they dismiss you like a lunatic? Like now you're either making it up, you're overly emotional, or you're crazy because this obviously didn't happen. So pause here for just a second before we move on. Um, there's one thing that I've always wondered about this Easter story, and um, you guys are safe, so I'll just, uh, even as a kid, I used to wonder about this, like, and it, it was this, I, I understand the stone rolled away, I don't know how it happened, but the stone rolled away, the empty tomb, um, the garments there, and all that kind of stuff, I, I get that, I can, I can wrap my head around it, but, but what I've always wondered is this, where exactly was Jesus? Like, and this may seem kind of like a simpleton to you, but, but I've always wondered, like, what was so pressing that when he rose from the dead, he had to immediately vacate the tomb? Like, I would have gotten up, I don't know, stretched, wait for daylight, wait for other people to come. But for some reason, like, what does a previously dead, uh, recently revived person have on his agenda that he needs to quickly get out of there? That's my question, and I know you probably, you're so holy and you never thought that, but these are the things that I think about when I'm reading the Bible. I'm like, what's the rush, dude? Like, seriously, like you're gone? Like, nobody even got to see you yet, and you're already, you vacated, and you're busy doing something else. What was Jesus doing? Where was he? Verse 13, we're going to pick right up in verse 13. It literally ends, verse 12 ends with, nobody believes these ladies, they're all crazy. Um, Verse 13 um, starts out and says that, now the same day, It's Easter morning still. The same day, two of them, them meaning not necessarily one of the 12 disciples, but one of the core disciples, right? Because we know that they're core disciples because later on we find out that they know exactly all about the women coming back and saying, he's not there, he's risen, and we got a jump scare, and all of these things. We know all about those, so we know that they were in the inner circle. Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, Emmaus we don't, is not a current town, village, city, anything like that, that we even really know where it was or where it existed, but it was seven miles away from Jerusalem, and they were on a road heading towards it. So apparently all this stuff went down this morning, and, um, and we know that they're aware of it, of what I just told you about the empty tomb. And here's the interesting thing, that instead of running to the tomb to see for themselves, they decide, these two followers of Jesus decide to leave town that that same day. Again, I'm like, what is the rush with all these people? Like, they, they, it's Easter day. And they're like, let's go to Emmaus. What? So they're walking on this path in verse 14. Keep following along with me. Luke 24, 14. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And we don't know exactly what, um, what they were saying. But from the verb tense here in the Greek, we know that it was emotional, that it was heated. Right? They, were, they were very maybe demonstrative and passionate. What were, they, what were they talking about? What was going on there, right? If I were to venture a guess, um, they were probably confused. They were probably uh, felt lied to. 
disillusioned, hopeless, angry, maybe over lost dreams. Maybe they felt like uh, wondering what kind of cult leader they'd been following for the past year and a half. Like, what, what, what was that? I mean, we put our hopes and dreams into this dude, and then he, he dies. Like, what, what were we doing? What did we pour our, our life and our hope and our faith into? It seems like it's all, all useless. These, these two individuals had lost hope. Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, this is where it gets good. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. <laughs> all of a sudden, they're walking down a road to Emmaus, and Jesus overtakes them and, and approaches them. And I want you to think about this. If Jesus is going to catch up with them, Jesus has to double down and run his little rear up to catch up with these guys. Two people walking away from Jerusalem and Jesus, the risen Christ, is is literally running to catch up with them. Jesus is following two people who were supposedly following him, right? He's having to chase them down and they weren't even looking for him and yet he had to find them. They thought that they had lost hope and hope found them. That's the beauty of the gospel. You know, when you think that you're all out of hope, you think that everything and walking in despair and you're walking down a road you shouldn't even be on to a destination you don't even care about and, and all of a sudden hope finds you along the way and begins walking with you and talking with you and you have no idea what's really going on in the beginning and all of a sudden you realize that hope had found you even when you weren't even looking for it. And this is what's crazy, because if I were Jesus, and nobody's ever accused me of that, but like if I rose from the dead, I would probably be thinking, we need to call a press conference, right? Like I need, if Twitter was around, I'd be tweeting, but like we need a crowd. Like let's get, let's call all the major news networks, let's get them on board, because I got stuff to say. I am, I rose from the dead, I got some things, and I need to speak to you and to you and and you, ma'am, and come a little closer. We've got some stuff to deal with here, right? And this is not what Jesus is doing. The first thing that he does, instead of preaching to a crowd, he's running after two people who are walking away from him. Isn't that crazy? The first thing that the risen Christ does is to catch up to two people that are headed in the wrong direction. Like it doesn't even make expediently any sense that you have limited time and yet this is what you're up to. And I just want to remind you, church, Christian or non-Christian, if you're in here today, um, don't forget that he came to seek and to save the lost. We've been talking about it the past couple of weeks, you know, about the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, and the other lost son. We've been, we've been discussing this and how his passion and his, his really priority is about the lost and the least of these. But I just want you to realize this. If you've ever doubted that Jesus really is passionate about the lost and really passionate about the least of these, just take a look at the things that he was up to after he rose from the dead. Because it really doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that he would be running after people who are walking away from him. And yet he runs them down to catch up with them. Why? Because he's so passionate about the lost. So passionate about them. And he continues, verse 16. This is where it gets weird. But they were kept from recognizing him. They were in the presence of Jesus Christ. And they didn't even know know it. I don't know how that even happens physically. Like, I don't know if he's wearing a hoodie or a mask like you and I. Like, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how he hid his um, identity for so long to these yahoos. But um, what I do know is how often I have failed to recognize Jesus working in my life right in front of my face. 
Like I do know that, that I have been kept from recognizing Jesus. I do know that like many times in my own life, I think that sometimes our disappointment can cloud our vision, right? We're just like, man, I just, it's not the way it turned out. We were hoping it was going to be different. You're walking down a road you shouldn't even be on to a destination you don't even care about. And you're kicking up dirt and you're kicking up stones and you're not happy with where it's at and you're disappointed. I think that sometimes you, you can become so clouded in your vision because you're kicking up so much dirt that you don't recognize Jesus when he's walking right, be, right beside you. I think that sometimes our doubt can, start, can, can get to the place where it starts to depress our hope. So like, man, this is not the way it was supposed to end up. This is not the way it was supposed to turn out. This is not where I saw my life going. This is not how I saw my marriage ending. This is not how all of this stuff happens. And what ends up happening is that our doubts begin to depress our hope. And so we just, we're just kind of walking in despair. There have been times in my life where my own sin and my own shame have begun to kind of hinder my intimacy with God. Not because he's like, get away from me, you're dirty, but because I feel like I'm dirty and I don't want to even look at him. And so I walk in sin or I walk in shame and say, you don't even know what I did last week. You don't even know what I did last summer. You don't even know. You don't even know. And he's like, I don't, I'm not as impressed by it, but you are as you are. Like, but sometimes it clouds our vision of him. I think that sometimes our current situation, 2020, uh, will dictate our level of expectation. Like, do you see what's going on? Are you checking out the news lately? Have you seen everything that's happening? And it begins to start to dictate our level of expectation. Sometimes life can just keep you from recognizing Jesus when he's right in front of you. Either way, these people are walking in the wrong direction and they're blinded to the reality of who's walking beside them. I just feel like there's a, there's a prophetic word for someone in here today that like, you may be walking down a road that you never thought you'd be on. You may go into, be headed in a destination that you never actually even want to end up in. You may, you may be getting to a place where you're like, I, I just don't even understand why I, I never hoped I would be here. I never expected to be here. I just want you to understand that Jesus is walking alongside you and you may not see him, you may not feel him, you may not recognize him, but I want you to know he's walking alongside you that you can be in his presence and not even know it. And you think, but you don't understand what I, what I just got. You don't understand I just went to the doctors. You don't understand that this is what's going on. You don't, like, you don't, you don't get it. And I'm saying, like, that, that, that's what he loves the most. Like, sometimes we think that we can only experience Jesus in the presence of God when we're in a holy place, barefooted around all their holy people. And, but can I remind you that Jesus consistently shows up in unexpected places? Consistently. His birth, for one. Very unexpected. What did he spend his time doing? Hanging out with very unexpected people, like sinners. What does he have in common with them? Not much other than they're lost and he loves lost people. Hanging out with tax collectors. What does he have in common with them? Not much, but they're sinners and Jesus loves to heal that. So that, there's that. He seeks after the lost. He's close to the brokenhearted. So just, I just want to say this to you. If you feel like you're in the place where you're like, yeah, you don't understand my sin. You don't understand that I'm lost right now. You don't understand that I'm brokenhearted. I just want you to know that just means that Jesus is close to you right now. Yeah, but I don't see it. He's not changing things. And I'm still walking through this, but he's close to the brokenhearted. He came to seek and to save the lost. His priority are the lost and the least. And now it gets to Luke chapter 24, verse 17. And this is where it gets comical for me because I like funny. And he says this. Um, Jesus walks up to them and says, 
What are you discussing together as you walk along? In other words, hey guys, what, what, what you talking about? I like talking, right? And they're just, <laughs> they're just kind of, uh, literally, they st- you can read it yourself. They stop in their tracks and stare him down, almost like, what flavor of an idiot are you? Like, are you ki- We just all came from Jerusalem. Um, I don't get it. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked, asked him, are, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these last days? Like, have you been living under a rock? What have, how, how do you not know what has just happened? I mean, it's Easter morning. Just remember this. It's, how, how do you not know about this? And I have to think that Jesus had like a little smirk because I totally would have if, if I said what Jesus said here in verse 19. He literally says, what things? What, what, do, you, what do you mean? Like, what? Tell, me, tell me more. What, what are we talking about? And they're like, a duh. About Jesus of Nazareth? Duh, right? They replied, he's like, he was a prophet? Hello? Powerful in word and deed? Yeah. Uh, before God and all the people, except obviously you, because I don't know where you came from, but, and then they go on in verse 20, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to, to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Did you not get the memo? Verse 21, and this is the crux, but we had hoped, we'd hoped, we'd hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And what's more, I mean, it's the third day since all this took place. But we'd hoped. The, message, the title of my message today is, but we had hoped. We'd hoped things were going to turn out. We, we'd hoped things were going to be different. And, and in essence, they had lost hope because their hope was in something rather than someone. We'd hoped things were going to turn out. We'd hoped he was going to overthrow Rome. We'd We'd hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. We'd hoped, but it's not. It's already been three days. We'd hoped that it was going to be different. I just want you to understand that these disciples, these followers of Jesus, did not wake up Easter morning thinking, man, today's going to rock. It's going to be awesome, right? You guys ready for this? Jesus has been talking about rising from the dead. It's like, tick-tock, tick-tock, three days, baby. Get ready. This is not what happened. They wake up mourning the fact that Jesus didn't do what they thought he should have done. They're just like, yeah, this is not what I thought was going to happen. Because when your hope is in hope itself, you will undoubtedly lose hope. When your hope is, man, I, I just think that God should do this. I just, I just think that this is how it should turn out. I just think that he should overthrow. I, should, I think that this is how he should redeem. I think that this is how this thing should go. I just want you to know when your hope is in hope, it will ultimately disappoint you because our hope is not in a thing. It's in a person. And you may find yourself kind of like these, these two disciples that are like going for a walk down a road that they shouldn't even be on, heading to a destination that nobody even cares about. And, and you won't recognize the living hope that is walking right beside you. Amen. They didn't see it. They didn't even recognize him. Can I just tell you, when Jesus doesn't do what you think he should do, it doesn't mean that he's hopeless. It just means that he's God. That's right. But I, I was hoping that he was going to do this, and I was, I was hoping it was going to look like that. Please, it doesn't mean that he's hopeless. It just means that he's God. 
And his ways are higher than our ways. And, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And sometimes we're like, man, I just think that, like, I know we sing about that. Your ways are higher than my ways, your thoughts. But I think that maybe I got some good ideas and you should listen to me. If you could just do the thing that I think you should do the way that I think you should do it. If, I know your, your ways are higher, but I think that my ways are almost there. If we could just talk it through, we could, we could find a, a really good idea. And he continues, and they continue filling this stranger in on the news of Jesus. Verse 22 through 24. If you've got your Bible, I want you to just kind of take a look at that, or you can highlight just those verses on your YouVersion app. Um, and just, I want you to just encapsulate those, verses 22 through 24. It says this, In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Do you realize that they literally just reported the Easter story? Like if you took verse 22 through 24 out of your Bible, you just kind of you know, cut it out and you put it up on the screen or whatever, you put it up on a wall, and I didn't tell you where it came from and I didn't tell you who said it, you would say, that's the Easter story. I mean, that's what our hope's in. This is the legit story of everything that happened and how Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But do you realize that these two guys are reporting the Easter story, reporting the good news like it's bad news? They're reporting. I mean, you look at it. There's nothing wrong in here. It's the facts. It's the details of everything that went down, except they're like, yeah, doesn't that stink? Yeah, so like the ladies came back and they're like, yeah, Jesus is gone. He's risen. I don't know. I guess we'll just keep going to Emmaus. I don't know, I got nothing else going on. Like, what? Are you kidding me right now? And what I was, I was processing as I was like praying through this scripture this week is that I was realizing that the good news only becomes good news when you tie your faith to it. Do you realize that? Amen. It only really becomes good news when, when you tie your hope and you put your faith into it. Have you ever wondered why non-Christians aren't that excited about the good news of Jesus Christ? If maybe you haven't talked to somebody about it recently, but sometimes you get a non-Christian friend and you're like, hey, let me tell you about Jesus and everything and this is why and then he rose from the dead and this is the whole deal. And they're like, oh, that's nice. You're like, are you kidding me right now? Like, why are you not excited about this? Why? Because the good news only becomes good news when you put your hope in it. Other than that, it's just news. And you've got these two people that are supposedly following Jesus and yet they're, they're, they're reporting the good news like it's just a news report. Yeah, that's what happened. Watch how Jesus responds to them in verse 25. I love him. He just says, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Like, he's like, in other words, you think I'm an idiot? You just preached the gospel like it was depressing. I'm sure he's thinking like, that. You, you should be a little more excited about what you just, you just told me about. Like that's, that's a good news right here. And, and yet... The problem that they had was not that they didn't understand something with their head. It was that they, they didn't understand it with their hearts. And, and that their unrealized hope had made their hearts sick. And when our hearts are sick, our faith is hindered. We get to this place where the good news is just kind of, of news. And I just believe as Jesus is coming alongside, walking on the road, listening to his story of rising from the dead, it's almost like he's like, guys, you've heard the news with your mind, but I need you to wake up and to hear it with your heart. I need you to put your faith into it. I need to put your hope into it. 
And he goes on, Jesus says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? I want you to capture what he's telling these people. He's saying, um, you both should be reading your Bibles more. Yeah, but here's the news, and this is what's going on. I just think if we're going to apply this to our current situation, our current day, um, I think he would say, stop reading the news and start reading your word. Or if you're going to read the news, could you just read it with, 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 the, with the reality that, like, what is the word of God over this situation? What is God doing in the midst of the news that I'm seeing right now? I, I, not that I'm saying we put our head in the sand and say, oh, no, COVID doesn't exist, and oh, no, all this politics junk doesn't exist, and all this stuff. I'm just saying, what if we lifted up our head and said, Jesus, what are you doing in the midst of this? And I'm not so focused in on flipping through all the channels so I can get my unbiased report. But maybe I get the good report of the good news of Jesus Christ and say, God, oh, this is what you're doing in my time, in our day, in our culture, in our nation, in my life, in my family, in my... Maybe this is what you're up to. And he's saying, wake up and get in your word, people. This is what he's saying. He's not saying it to you. He's saying it to these two guys. Get in your word. Because you just reported the good news of Jesus Christ as though it were bad news. And I'm a little ticked off. I would be too, after what I had to go through. He says, get in your word. And then Jesus preaches the greatest sermon never recorded. You can read it in verse 27. It's one, one sentence long. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Can you just imagine? I've thought about this. Like, what? What was that sermon like? I mean, this is like the best. If they didn't write something, I wish that this was written down. I would have given anything to be a fly on the poop on the road to Emmaus. <laughs> Literally. I would be like buzz, buzz, buzzing from poop to poop. To poop, to poop, to poop. Seven miles on Emmaus, just, just soaking this stuff in. Just being like, I can't even believe this. It's the best sermon never recorded. And it just kind of, it's like here, this is what he did. He just explained everything. Just explained everything in the Bible and how it all points to him. Oh, is that all? I'm glad we didn't write that down. Really? <laughs> Essentially, I've been, I've been like going through scripture. I've been praying about this. I'm like, Lord, I wonder what he talked about. Because essentially, it says that he went through the Old Testament continually pointing to and prophesying of Jesus. And yes, there's, there's morality and there's sacrifices and there's law and there's history, but it all points to Jesus. It all, it's all about Jesus. And he methodically teaches through the Old Testament. This is what he did, connecting it all to Jesus. And we could spend hours going through all the Christophanies and prophecies and all these things where, where, where our Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus, but I want to just give you a few that Jesus, hopefully, probably, I don't butcher this thing up, remind them of in this seven-mile walk to a place they shouldn't even be heading to. The first one, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is speaking to Satan, the serpent in the garden, after the fall of Adam and Eve, and this is what God says to, to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's kind of like essentially saying, sin has now come into this world and I'm going to be sending a savior. You're going to strike his heel, Satan, 
And you're going to think you won. But let me just tell you, he's going to crush your head. Yeah, you're going to snip at him and you're going to be like, ha ha, we won. No, he's going to crush your head and you're not even going to know that it's going to be happening. The next one, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is roughly a prophecy, roughly 700 years before Jesus is even born. This is what it says in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So how do we know the Messiah? Well, a virgin is going to have a baby. Kind of narrows it down for us. There's not a lot of pregnant virgins around. Back then or now, I don't really see him much. Um, His name is Emmanuel, which literally means God is with us. God is with us. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Just got a few more. Uh, Roughly 700 years before Jesus was born. But you, Bethlehem, city, Ephathra, a region, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, eternity. Where was Jesus born? O little town of Bethlehem. Okay. Psalm 22, verse 16. Um, How did the Messiah die? Psalm 22, verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This is prophesying Jesus' crucifixion a thousand years before he was even born. Not only that, um, this is written hundreds of years before crucifixion is even a thing. It's never even, even a thing. Hundreds of years before that, talking about piercing of his hands and his feet. But honestly, I wonder if Jesus maybe just focused in and read Isaiah 53. If you've never read Isaiah 53, you should read it. Because essentially, it literally describes what these two people just witnessed days before. Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus is even born. I'm going to read a portion of it, verses 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed." Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the, with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, catch this, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he had suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. I mean, you could just read through Isaiah 53, and you'd almost think that it was an account of Jesus' death. You'd read it and be like, yeah, this is kind of all the things that happened in Jesus' death, burial, and, you know, resurrection. And it was written roughly 700 years before he was even born. So Jesus gets done with this greatest sermon never recorded. And um, verse 28, 
As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, like, yeah, I'm just going to keep walking. Verse 29, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. It's getting dark out. The day's almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. Can I tell you, church, God is always a gentleman. He waits until you invite him in. But know this, once you do invite him in, he's going to want to take over. <laughs> he he kind of thinks that he's Lord and Savior. He kind of thinks he's creator. He, once you invite him in, he doesn't just come in as a visitor. He comes in as a host. You can read it. Look what he does in Cleopas's house, verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. He literally comes in to Cleopas's house, takes Cleopas's bread at Cleopas's table, and starts breaking it, starts taking over the dinner, and uh, starts acting like he's the one hosting them. Like, thank you so much. You know, I'll just take that and take this. I want to show you guys something. Here we go, and here we go. I'm going to pass this out. Um, and he starts entertaining them. And Jesus moves from going to be like a stranger invited into somebody's home into being like a host and like, okay, I'm in charge here and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take control of this dinner. He doesn't even ask permission. We don't see anything about this. Essentially, he takes the invitation as permission. And I think that sometimes, especially in our 21st century, when we you know, receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we don't quite understand what that means. We say, well, we didn't just invite Jesus Christ to, into your life. I, I, I think that sometimes we don't understand what Jesus means that that means. Because he wants to, to come in, and, and many times we want the benefits of being saved without the, having to be humble and needing a Savior. Like, I, yeah, I'd like you to save me and a free ticket into heaven, but I just don't know if I necessarily need you. Or we want the benefits of being a son, but I don't want to have to be obedient to a father. Mm, that one's hurt me all week long. Or many times we're like, yeah, I, I want to make you my Lord and my Savior, but then we begin resenting him when he wants to feel like he should call the shots in our life. And he's like, well, I thought that's what you're inviting me in for. Can I just tell you this, church? Don't get offended if Jesus starts cooking in your kitchen. <laughs> I mean it. Like when you're like, yeah, Jesus, I want to invite you into my life. And he's just like, okay, great. Well, then let's cook something. Get some milk over here. Get some eggs. Great. Okay. I'm going to start cooking this thing up. And yeah, if you could, if you could get, get, get me some of this. And I'm like, all of a sudden you're Jesus's sous chef. <laughs> like Jesus, I thought you were, I'm just going to have you over for, for dinner. And he's like, no, actually, now that I'm here, I'm going to have you for dinner. Right. And I, and you just, you just do kind of what, what I need you to do. Don't get, don't get offended if Jesus starts breaking your bread. I thought that was mine. No, no that's, here you go. Don't be offended if, if Jesus starts telling you that he's like wanting to rearrange your living room. You know what? I don't know. I'm just kind of looking around here and I was thinking maybe you should move that chair and switch that sofa. That would look better. Uh, well, I mean, I kind of like it the way it is, Jesus. And he's like, no, I don't. Let's move it. Okay, okay, let's move. Don't, don't get offended if Jesus comes in and he starts thinking that that. that he should be able to dictate who, who you, who's sleeping in your bed with you. Well, yeah, this is getting awkward. <laughs> really, I mean, you're, uh, I invited you in. You're, I don't think that's any of your business. And he's like, oh, no, it is. <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't think so, Jesus. Yeah, this is, this is a, whew, it's getting hot in here. What? I mean, my goodness. 
Don't get offended when Jesus asks for the password on your iPhone. Just private. I mean, Google's already listening to me and I don't need you seeing it, right? I mean, like this is... Just butt out, Jesus. Don't get offended when he asks for the history on your laptop. Well, you're like, that's no problem. I already cleared it. You know, it's fine. Here you go. It's, it's clean. I'm hiding nothing. Blank slate, Jesus, right? Don't get offended when Jesus wants access to your closets. What are you doing in there? You're running. Nobody goes in there. Stay out of that medicine cabinet. Are you serious? Like, this is, this is, and I just want you to understand, God doesn't want to actually be an, an optional add-on to your life. He doesn't want to be a, a visitor or just a part of your life. He is a gentleman, and he will wait for your invitation. But, but make moments like he always comes in as Lord. He really doesn't have room for any other relationship. He's not like, oh, well, thanks so much for inviting me in. I'll just, just don't mind me. I'm just going to sit over here. Oh, that dog's really wily. No, he comes in as Lord. He just comes right in and starts breaking bread and cooking in your kitchen and telling you how he wants things rearranged. And you're like, excuse me, Lord and Savior. Wait a minute. You are Lord and Savior. Excuse me, but you need to get out, right? And we get offended at the fact that he thinks that he should be able to speak into things that we don't think he want him to speak into. In just a moment, we're going we're gonna to receive communion together. And so if you're, if you're here right now and you've got these, um, these little packets, hopefully you got one, um, begin the process of tearing off that first piece of cellophane, which can be a real job. Um, first person, first world problems. But anyway, um, once you get this out, um, the, it's so cool because Jesus takes the bread He gives thanks, he breaks it, and he begins to give it to them. And then in verse 31, I want you to catch this. As soon as he breaks the bread, this is so cool because we're doing communion right now. It says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Like as as in the breaking of the bread, they're like, Jesus. And then he's like, poof, gone. I don't know if he was like, I got, other, I got other yahoos that are walking away from me that I got to go run down, right? I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you get this. Hope you took notes. Um, I can't imagine what that must have been like. I cannot imagine what that must have been like when um, I'm not sure how it happened in the moment. I don't know if, I, I, I wonder if as he was breaking the bread, just imagine this, that they saw the, the scars in his hands, right? And all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh. I don't know if as he was breaking the bread, it was just so familiar to them because he had done it so many times before. It was the way he did it, like when he fed the 5,000 and he broke the bread. Or maybe like just a few days ago when he broke the bread at Passover, when they were celebrating the Last Supper together. Like, I don't know what that was, but for some... Here's the thing that I always wonder, and it's not in here, so this is just Justin speaking, but I've always wondered this. I wonder when he broke the bread, if he said those words... that are probably still ringing in their ears. This is my body. Broken for you. Whatever he did, all of a sudden they realized that the hope that they thought that they had lost found them all over again. And I just want to encourage you, church, Right now, I don't care where you're at right now. I don't care if you feel like you're walking down a road you shouldn't be on to a destination you never thought you'd be at. 
uh, maybe, maybe you're in a place where you've, you're walking in despair or doubts or hopelessness or your fear, whatever that looks like. I just want you to know that hope wants to find you. And they ask this question in verse 32. And it's a question that I really truly believe that only a Christian can understand. Really. This is how they said it. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? In other words, did you guys feel that? And, and, and if you're a Christian here today, like, you know that you know that you know. Like, maybe, maybe you were driving, you were doing your dishes, you were in a, you're in a worship service, you're listening to this message right now, and, and you just, all of a sudden, Jesus shows up or speaks out of someone else's mouth, and you just, all of a sudden, your hearts burn within you. And you just know that you know that you know that you're encountering something different than everyday experience. The presence of Jesus Christ. That's why I say that only a Christian can understand this. I, I, I think that what they're describing is something that is so significant when all of a sudden the word of God comes alive to you and you just know that you know that this is different than just listening or, or hearing something with your mind. It's, it's being transferred to your heart and changing you from the inside out. And this burning of your heart thing is what essentially reminding you what Jesus has done. The message paraphrase says it like this. They said, didn't our hearts feel like they were on fire when he was reminding us about all that he had said and done? In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together to remind you not what you've done, but what he has said and what he has done. And I pray, I pray that even as maybe it's been happening to you this this throughout this whole day, I don't know what this looks like for you, I pray that your heart would burn in you as you're reminded of, of the great things that God has done in your life. And as we celebrate communion, it's all about remembering. And I pray that you would realize as you look over the past week, over the past day, over the past year, 2020, as you look over your past to say, God, I recognize and I see you that you have never left me nor forsaken me, that you have been walking alongside of me through all of this, and most of the time, I didn't even see you. Because many times, it's only after we walk through a situation that we look back and we can see that Jesus carried us through the entire way, that he's been walking alongside us the entire way. Because in the nasty now and now, in the moment, you just feel like, where are you? Have you watched the news recently? Where are you? Do you see what's going on? Do you see what's going on in my marriage? Do you see what's going on in my family? Do you even see? Do you even know? And Jesus says, yeah, I'm right here. Like, I'm right. I'm right here. I'm walking with you through this entire thing. And so as we share this communion, I pray that your heart would burn as you remember not just what he did 2,000 years ago, not just this Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies and all of that stuff. I pray that you would remember the change, the victory, the new life, the testimony, the peace, the hope, the love that's available to you right, right now. As your Savior, Savior runs after you, with grace that you don't deserve and mercy that is outlandish. So let's celebrate together. For I received from the Lord what I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. 
When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said this, these words, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as we walk down the paths as we walk through our year, as we walk down a seven-mile road that we wish we'd never even stepped foot on, God, I pray and I thank you that you walk alongside with us. Even while we're still walking to a destination we don't even want to end up at, you just walk along with us just because you like walking and talking with us. God, I thank you that, that you don't just leave us where we're at or call us to come back but that you double down and chase us down with your grace and your mercy and meet us along the road that we shouldn't even be on. Lord, I thank you that you are more than enough. I love what, the, what these two disciples did in verse 33. Their response was they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They had walked seven miles in the wrong direction only to turn around and run back to where it all began. They came to this place where they were walking toward their disappointment, toward their disappointment, and finally realized they needed to turn around and run back to their hope. And so, Lord, I pray right now for those of us in here that feel like we are in despair, to feel like we are, we're focusing on, on news but not focusing on the good news. We're focusing on the chaos around us and not asking, God, what is your plan and your purpose in the midst of it? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would walk alongside us just as you have, that we would recognize you and see you. Even though we don't see it, even though we don't feel it, God, I pray that you would make yourself real to us. I pray for your peace, your hope that surpasses understanding. I pray that it would be available to us today. And as we walk and go through our day, as we close out 2020 and head into this new year, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be asking the question, God, what is your word? What is it that you're doing in my midst right now? Where am I headed? And Jesus, if you want to cook in my kitchen, you want to break my bread, you want to feel like I need to rearrange my living room, Jesus, you speak it and I'll do it because I don't want to just be a son without having to be obedient to a father. So Lord, we thank you that you go before us, behind us, beneath us, beside us, every step of the way, that you never leave us nor forsake us. We rest in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, 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 amen. God bless you. Have an amazing week. Go in the strength of the Lord.